please join us in giving special thanks to our patrons. Storyfolk Paul Jackson, Sean Powell, Shawnee Basket, and Selena Vokenhauer. With their support, we can keep on bringing you these stories. You're listening to Lore and Legend, tales from our mythic past. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick, and I'm bringing you legendary tales that are inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Suzanne and Jake Tumnus, a bardic storytelling duo who blend stories and music to take you to places where dragons fly, giants comb their beards, and otherworldly folk dance with us mere mortals. Singing songs and telling stories from a repertoire of traditional pieces and their own compositions, Suzanne and Jake find their inspiration in the folk tales, legends and songs of Britain and the wild hills of South Shropshire. They made their debut at Festival at the Edge in 2014 and have since taken their unique telling style to storytelling clubs, art centres, schools and folk festivals throughout England and Wales. Suzanne's passion for sharing stories has taken her to schools, libraries, the National Trust and all kinds of festivals. She first found her love of stories and legends growing up in the Midlands and on holidays by the sea and in the mountains of Wales. Jake, with his individual musical style, writes and performs his own compositions and original arrangements of traditional folk songs. He plays the finger-picking folk style guitar inspired by the acoustic folk legends. Myths, legends and landscapes play a strong part in his inspiration. Now Suzanne and Jake's show Saints and Witches, which you are about to hear, tells the stories of five magical women woven together beautifully with music and song, forming a journey through the seasons. A sequence of stories that collapses a year into a day and then into a moment and into the form of a hair. Johnson had had the box for a while now, but something told her that now was the time to open it. She knew what was inside. Nanny Beth had said many times that of all her nine great-granddaughters, she was the one who would be able to use it and use it well. She turns off her phone, pours herself a cup of mugwort tea from the pot and takes a sip. It was a plain wooden box, nothing much to look at. She unhooks the latch opens the lid, moves the old tea towel that covers the mirror, lifting it gently, she pulls the stand from the back into place. She dips her middle finger into the tea and wipes the liquid across the glass. The mirror is ready and so is she. I shall go into a hair With sorrow 
looks into the mirror. Instead of blue eyes and brown hair, there are amber eyes and brown fur and long ears tipped with black. She jumps down from the chair and makes her way to the back door. She looks up at the handle and down at her paws and heads out through the cat flap. It was the time of year where three drops of summer seemed to pause the winter storms. Beneath her furry feet, the path is frosty. There are snowdrops in the flower bed, but the sun is shining in a clear blue sky. She makes her way down the frosted path, feeling the way her new body moves. She takes her first leap up onto the garden wall and sees the world for what feels like the first time. The landscape is familiar, but she can see all around with her different eyes and sense new dangers. Should she go? The sun is shining on the hillside and something calls her to go there. She leaps down from the wall onto the lane, the tarmac hard and cold under her paws. What am I doing? I'm a hare. I don't have to follow the lane. I can go across the meadow. She makes her way along the hedge until she finds a gap in the thorny branches. She pushes through, looking up at the sky and listening. No danger there and on she goes towards the hill. So much easier to climb a hill with those strong hind legs. She sees other hares heading to the same place, monkeys fold. Hares always seem to gather there and now she knows why. There were more hares than ever, leaping, running, playing, until one calls them to order with a thump of her foot. This hare is bigger than them all. She stands on her hind legs, her ears tall and erect, eyes scanning the fold. Then she speaks. There is one among us who is new, she must learn. So through the seasons, she must run. The hairs scatter in all directions, zigzagging across the field. Elspeth runs in the chaos, not knowing where to. She slows as the panic eases. Catching her breath, she remembers what Nanny Beth had taught her. Through the seasons I shall run until my light for journey's done and i shall learn the ladies names i till i go home again her ears catch the sound of tumbling water she follows the sound to the source of it Among the splashing and gurgling, the story begins. Mm -hmm. 
On the slopes of Brown Clee in South Shropshire, there is a well. It is filled by a spring and overflows into a stream. It has been there for centuries, and a saint decreed that it should flow forevermore. But it hasn't always been there. Milberger was riding her white horse through the fields of Goddestoke. She looked every bit as regal as the princess she was, for she was indeed the daughter of a Saxon king, Merriwold of Magenset. She was the eldest of his three daughters, and like her sisters, had turned away from the courtly life and taken holy orders. Now she was the abbess at Wimnicus, and so loved was she that in her lifetime she became a saint. She would come to this place often to find peace and tranquility away from the hubbub of Abbey life. The sky was blue, the skylarks were singing, all around was peaceful, until. She heard in the distance the sound of a hunting horn and the baying of hounds. She knew exactly who it was, a prince who wouldn't take no for an answer. He wasn't hunting boar or a stag, he was hunting her. Milberger urged her horse on, but a hare darted out from the undergrowth and startled the mare. She reared up and Milberger was thrown to the ground, hitting her head on a stone. As she woke up, she heard voices. Not the prince and his men, but two farmers who had been sowing barley in a field nearby. Then there was the pain, her head throbbing, blood pouring from the wound. My lady, are you all right? We saw you fall. We tried to help, but we've no water. The horse nuzzled Milberger's shoulder. Milberger placed her hand on the mare's nose. The horse started to dig at the ground with her hoof. Water began to seep through the earth, bubbling, spurting, gushing. The farmers gathered it in their cupped hands and began to bathe Milberger's head. The blood washed away. Flesh knitted together and the skin healed. Milberger stood up and dusted herself down. She thanked the men, stood for a moment in prayer and said, Holy water, henceforth and forever flow freely. The sound of the hunting horn, closer this time, the hounds louder than before. Milberger got back on her horse. The hunters will come this way. The prince will ask if you have seen me. Tell him, tell him you saw me when you were sowing the barley and make ready your scythes. As she rode away, the farmers went back to the field. They saw that the seeds had indeed taken root. The shoots pushed the earth aside. Green stalks grew tall as the ears of barley formed and ripened. They looked on in awe. Then just as Milberger had said, the hunters came. The prince pulled on the reins of his chestnut stallion. You two, have you seen a woman on a white horse pass this way? If you mean the Lady Milberger, then yes. She rode by when we were sowing the barley. Sowing the barley? But it, it's ready to harvest. Then he saw the seed bags at their belts and realised that Milberger would never be his, as she was no ordinary woman. We shall leave this prey uncaught. I will hunt her no longer. He turned his horse and rode away. On the slopes of Brown Clee, there is a well. 
It is filled by a spring and overflows into a stream. It has been there for centuries, and a saint decreed that it should flow forever more. As a hare, Elspeth looks into the well. She sees her fur growing in all directions, the tones of grey, black and brown. She follows the stream downhill. The sun is bright. The land is greening. A buzzard calls out overhead. This is no time for a hare to be out in the open. Time to run. The seasons turn. The scent of hawthorn blossom is heavy in the air. She ambles along the hedgerow and sees a churchyard enclosed by ancient yew trees. She makes her way towards them and steps inside the hollow trunk of an ancient yew. Through the roots and branches, she hears them telling a story of a princess, daughter of an Irish king. She hunkers down and listens. Melangeth was kneeling in prayer in a grove of trees. She had left her land, her title and her betrothed behind to leave a simple life in this secluded place. Her bed was a moss-covered ledge beneath an overhanging rock and her companions were the animals of the valley. So deep in prayer was she that the first she knew of the hunt was the hare diving into the folds of her cloak. She looked up and saw the hound circling around her their eyes fixed, teeth showing, lips curled. She took the frightened hare in her arms and soothed it with tender words. The hound backed away, almost bowing in reverence. This is how their master, Prince Brockwell, found them. He dismounted from his horse. <laughs> I see you've caught my hare. What have you done to my dogs? He urged the hounds on, but they stayed where they were. Who are you? Melangeth stood up and covered the hair with her cloak once more. She looked the prince straight in the eyes and said, I was once chased by a man and found my sanctuary here in the cloak of this valley. I grant the same to this hair in my cloak. You shall not harm her. I am Prince Brockwell. I own this valley. I ask you again, who are you? I am Melangeth, daughter of a king of Ireland. I seek only peace and prayer in this place. The prince looked at her. His anger cooled as he saw in her stance the dignity and poise of one of royal blood. Then he backed away and bowed in reverence. My lady, this land is yours. Build a church for your prayers. May all that come here find peace. If this land is mine, no animal is to be hunted here from this day forth. The prince agreed, and to this day there is a church in that valley, surrounded by a grove of ancient yew trees, and no animal is hunted there. Mm -hmm.
thunder rumbled across the valley. As a hare, she steps out from the shelter of the tree to listen and to feel the storm. She stands resting on her hind legs and watches as the storm follows the path of the river. Her ears catch the sound of a dog barking. Time to run. The seasons turn. She runs up the hillside along the margins of a cornfield, ripe and golden in the light of the setting sun, slowing as she nears the farm with the weathercock. The black iron silhouetted against the sky spins round as the breeze catches the tail. son of Simon Bacher, the farmer. It had all started when Simon was taken ill with a fever. Maisie had been sent for, for she was a witch. Not the sort who spoils your butter and rides your horses at midnight, though she did talk to herself and mutter about people under her breath and carried a black hen on her shoulder. She was a witch who knew the herbs that healed. Pleasance went with her as she was learning the craft and Maisie had seen the glances and smiles that passed between Pleasance and Harry, and they'd been seeing a lot of each other since then. So when Harry came to the cottage to ask for Pleasance's hand in marriage, Maisie was ready. Are you able to keep my daughter in the manner to which she is accustomed? Do you have a job, Harry? Yes, uh, well, uh, I work at Dad's farm and I help out here and there and um, not exactly. Do you have somewhere to live? Well, um, I thought we could live at my Dad's farm. Um, not exactly. Maisie could see the love in Harry's heart and knew that Pleasance loved him. The hair on her shoulder clucked. This gave her an idea. Come back in three days, Harry. I'll have something for you. Harry ran from the cottage and Maisie smiled. She went into the kitchen, placed the hen on the table. The hen clucked and laid an egg. While Maisie, she took that egg. She painted spirals and sigils on it. She muttered words over it, held it up to the sun at the top of the hill, held it in the river when the moon was shining on the water. Harry had used up all his courage the first time, so when he came back three days later, he was more than a little nervous. But his love for Pleasance gave him strength, even as he approached the cottage with its strange charms and accoutrements hanging by the door. Maisie was waiting for him, with the egg. Here you go, Harry. Place this in the hollow ash tree for three weeks. Not a day more, nor a day less. Then place it under a broody hen, and what will be, will be. Well, Harry did as he was told. He went to the hollow ash tree and placed the egg safely inside. He left it there for three weeks, not a day more or a day less. He took it carefully out and placed it under a broody hen. Well, nature did what nature does. 
and the egg hatched and from it came a chick, a fluffy little black thing it was. But the chick grew and grew into a fine cockerel. Its comb and job locks were the brightest red. Its feathers were blacker than a raven's bottom and its spurs were long and sharp. At that time, cockfighting was commonplace and there was money to be made, so Harry trained the cockerel. He fed it on the recommended diet of raw steak, brandy, maggots and urine, and called him the witch's bird. He put the bird into his first fight, and he won. Harry had a shilling in his pocket. Another fight, another win, another shilling. The witch's bird was unbeatable. But the locals no longer wanted to risk their birds against him, so Harry took his cockerel to the city. The bird fought and won again and again, even beating Lord Derby's birds. But Harry wasn't in it for the glory. He'd made enough to buy that little farm he'd had his eye on. He filled the barns with cows and the fields with sheep. He fixed up the farmhouse and even made a little herb garden for Pleasance. He returned to Maisie Bloomer's cottage to ask for Pleasance's hand in marriage. Good morning, Mistress Bloomer. Good morning, Harry Bacher. Are you able to keep my daughter in the manner to which she is accustomed? Do you have a job, Harry? Yes, I do. I am a farmer with my own land. Do you have somewhere to live? Indeed, a fine farmhouse, thanks to that egg. And so Maisie gave her blessing. Pleasance and Harry were married and went to live happily on the farm. Pleasance reorganised the herb garden and the witch's bird strutted proudly around the farmyard. As a hare, Elspeth stretches into every part of her body feeling every muscle, sinew and bone. Her front legs gallop and her hind legs bound as she travels across the field. She freezes as a fox calls out, dangerously close. She looks and sees him. He sees her. He takes a step closer. She waits. Closer he comes. She waits. Another step. She runs onto the common. The rising moon casts her light across the land. In the clearing in the frosted bracken, she sees a white cow with a calf feeding from her udders. As the calf pulls away satisfied, a drop of milk falls to the ground. A voice in her head speaks the name, Mitchell. And the song begins. Blamed. 
Some say it was famine, some say it was a drought, but they all came to me when the grain had run out. They wanted my wisdom, they wanted my charms. I am the one that they blamed. What could I tell them? What could I do? They'd forsaken the land for a path that was new. No longer honoring well and tree. I am the one that they blamed. I called for the circle, the white cow on the hill. They came and they milked her, their bellies to fill. I stood and I watched and I waited my turn. I am the one that they blamed. To do it, they didn't understand the holes in my pail to give back to the land. Her udders milked dry, she went on her way. I am the one that they blamed.
As a hare, Elspeth looks out at the world. Around the moon, clouds are gathering. The fields are laid out before her. A feeling rises. She runs just because she can. Tail down, limbs stretching, leaping over ditches, running straight along icy furrows of frozen clay. She comes to rest exhilarated. Snow starts to fall and she's mesmerised. Snowflakes falling silently on the earth. Beer as shawl covering the land. Beera was the queen of winter. She had shaped the hills and mountains with her hammer long ago, for she was a giant. She had blue skin, white hair and one eye. Her shawls were made from snow and when she washed them, she draped them on the hills to dry. If Beera was the queen of winter, then surely there was a king of summer. There was her son Angus, who lived on the Green Isle in the land of the Ever Young. At the end of winter, he would travel with his cloak of gold around his shoulders, across the sea, bringing summer with him. Beera was always pleased to see him, but not too early, not too soon. Winter was hers, and she liked to have a full winter. She could see into his world through the well of ages and he could see into hers through the well of youth. It was the time when there were only two seasons, winter and summer, but the world and the way things would be was still being set. This was when Bridie came to the valley. No one knows where she came from or who she was. She just appeared there, wearing green, and she was beautiful. Wherever she walked, snowdrops would spring up in her footsteps. But Beera didn't like snowdrops, and she took her hammer to them, smashing them back into the earth. But Bridie kept walking, and snowdrops kept appearing. Beera invited Bridie into her house and set her the task of washing her shawls in the Well of Ages. Day and night she was imprisoned there. And this was when Angus saw her. As he looked into the well of youth, he saw Bridie washing the shawls and lamenting her fate. And she saw him. Bitter wind. He who sees rim. 
of hell it will be. Come, my prince, my oh, king. Mother, release my queen. He shakes the world with pounding hooves to raise the heat within. And we shall walk the greening path with cloak of gold. He'll come and set me free. arrived in the green isle with three drops of summer woven into his cloak of gold and three days of winter were pushed aside. Vera found them, gathered them up and put them in her bag. A welcome feast was laid out for Angus and who should be serving but Bridie? Angus looked at Bridie, Bridie looked at Angus, each recognising the other from the visions in the well. Vera blinked her knowing eye, but said nothing. The evening passed with little conversation, and the next morning Bridie was back at the well, washing the shawls. In the evening, she served at the table. Again, the evening passed with little conversation. But Angus took Bridie's hand, and together they left the hall. They woke in each other's arms, then they left together. Vera watched them go and opened up the bag, pulling the days of winter out one by one. And those snowdrops appeared at every step as Bridie walked, 
their stalks were bent by the howling wind, their flowers stiffened with frost, their leaves bruised by hail, and Vera smiled. I have run and now my light for journey's done I have learned the ladies names now I shall go home again as a hare she runs along the hedgerows snowdrops bursting into bloom along the verges shining in the light of the rising sun. Leaping up onto her garden wall, she turns to look at the world once more with those different eyes. Up the garden path, through the cat flap, and up onto the chair. She sees herself in the mirror, the amber eyes, brown fur, and long ears tipped with black, fading. I have been into a hair With sorrow and such mickle care I have been in the lady's name A woman I become again Blue eyes and brown hair in the reflection As she folds the mirror down puts the tea towel back across it, closes the lid and puts the latch back into place. There we go. If you guys would just like to introduce yourself uh, to the listeners. Hi, my name is Suzanne. Uh, I'm a storyteller, folklorist, and nature lover. I tell stories, I collect folklore, and I look at nature and weave them all together. And sometimes I sing. Um, I'm Jake. I'm a guitarist and musician. And uh, mostly I've been doing the, the music for the stories that Suzanne tells. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, Saints and Witches, it's... Um... It's five different stories, isn't it, that you've woven together in uh, into a narrative. Um, remind us what those uh, what those five stories are. Well, there's the story of St Milberg as well, which is not far from where we live on um, uh, Clee Hills in South Shropshire. And then there's just over the border is um, Pennant Melangeth, and the story of the, the saint who rescued a hare in the folds of her cloak. And then we move on to the witches with Maisie Bloomer, who is um, supposedly a local witch. And um, then we go to Mitchell's Fold and tell Mitchell's side of the story. And then we end with a, a Scottish tale of Vera and Bridie. They're all wrapped round together with a version of the Hare's Parliament, where a, uh, where a lady turns herself into a hare and travels through the landscape. Uh, and the Hare's Parliament, that's that's the uh, folk song, is it? Um, well, it's, it's kind of... Um, the, the Hare's Parliament is in Catherine Briggs, uh, where um, 
two people buy a mirror at market, they get home, they look in it, they turn into a hair, they go off up a, up a hill and there's a parliament of hairs there and they are discovered as being new hairs. And so there's the chase back and then they never use the mirror again. But we thought we'd we'd bind that together with um, a story of the Scottish witch, Isabel Gowdy. Isabel Gowdy, that's it. And um, the the rhyme she told the um, the witch hunters was, I shall go into a hair. Um, so we wove that into a song, which turns Elspeth Johnson into a hair while looking in the mirror. She goes off as a hair, goes through the seasons, finds the story, comes back to exactly the point where she left off and becomes a woman again. But she's learned so much on that journey. And we learned a lot while we were doing it as well. So, What kind of attracted you to those stories then? Why did you uh, want to weave them all together into, into one narrative? Um, well, we, we were asked to do um, uh, the stories at Milberger for a local school. And so we started looking at the legends and we thought, hang on, there's something we can do with this. Let's, let's bind them together with the local stories of witches and how there's common themes in both of them. They're both trying to save nature. They're both trying to, um, they're both healers. We, we did at one point call it women healers with different gods um, as a like subtext. Um, so we, we thought there are similarities here. Let's, let's put them together in a, in a show. And how are we going to, and, and we, we got this, um, the image on the on the video is uh, is a, a Celtic cross with a hair leaping across it, and so we were thinking because you know, the hairs represent the witch because the um, there are legends of witches turning into hairs, and the, obviously the cross represents the saints. And we were like, how can we weave these stories together? And then we looked at the picture again and went, the hair story. So we just thought, yeah, that that will work. So. I started researching hairs. I must have read about five or six books. And um, we had to look at how hairs see um, because they don't see in colour. They have different rods and cones in their eyes. There's a different colour spectrum that they see. in. So in this half light, everything stands out clearer. Yeah, they go more on contrast than colour. So how, how the, uh, there's one point in the, in the story where uh, the hare sees a fox and so we had to look at how a hare would interact with the fox. And, and that it was just fascinating. We learned so much um, researching it. So, yeah, that went off a bit question, <laughs> top of it, didn't it? But... No, it's good. Um, that thing about the vision, I, I came across something similar recently when I, um, I was doing a story with a cat. And it's the same day. Um, they see a different color spectrum and they have a wider field of vision and all of that kind of thing. And uh, um, I guess when you're talking about uh, sort of figures like uh, saints and witches, um, there's this kind of like powerful idea of seeing the world from a different perspective through different eyes, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because a witch would, would view a rowan tree in a very different way to a saint, perhaps. They're both use the magic to ward off evil probably but with a different view of evil yeah Milberger is kind of like an important figure in Shropshire folklore and history hair's quite prominent as part of the the Shropshire landscape was that a, a big inspiration 
there, there are yeah. there are a few hares around here. Um, luckily, we see them in the field next to our house, and um, they come and visit now and again. And when we were thinking about recording this, we had the hare visit the field, and she stared right at us. And we were like, right, okay, it's time to record it then. And then we were we took about two weeks to record it, and we're editing it down. We were going to originally release it on the twenty third of February. Because that's St Milberger's Day. But we saw the hare in the field on the 21st and it was looking straight at us. We thought, right, we'll put it up today then. So, yes, they are very prominent in our in our, um, in our everyday lives, I suppose. Um, there's a, um, a field mentioned in the story called Monkey's Fold. And that's not monkeys as in apes, but it's actually the, one of the old terms for hares. And they, they said it's called Monkey's Fall because the hares gather there and that's up on Brown Clee. So it's like, well, let's just have them meeting at Monkey's Fold then. So that's fine. So we've got a place for the hares parliament straight away. There's old traditions where if you see a, if you see a hare on Clee Hills and you're pregnant, you have to tear the hem of your dress to stop your baby having a hare lip. That's one of the Clee Hill traditions of hares. Uh, I think it's wonderful when you can... Uh tie storytelling so closely to local landscape and history and, and your own experiences. Uh, so that's that's great. How long have you been telling stories together? Um, telling stories together? Well, we are married, so that kind of helps. Um, <laughs> we've, we started working on things together uh, around about 2004. I mean, Jake was already a guitarist, has been since he was seven. And I was a storyteller. I decided to be a storyteller at Festival at the Edge in 2005. I was like, right, I want to do that. So I started learning stories. And um, we just generally progressed to, uh, to work in, no, 2014. 2014, 2014 was when we yeah. had the LB night ready. Yeah. And we did, no, it wasn't. That was... In 2014, we did, did the Dragons one together. We did the Dragons thing. Festival at the Edge was our first, yeah. our first Festival at the Edge. 2014, we'd started working on things just before that, really, to actually put it together and do it. Instead of just doing our own little bits, I'd do the music on my own, since I'm doing the storytelling. But to bring it together was around about 2013. It's been quite a long time then, really, hasn't it? <laughs> it's working all right. It's 2000, 2017 was the festival at the edge, wasn't it? Yeah. And how did you, how did you discover kind of storytelling as a thing? I mean, was the decision to start telling stories yourself um, something that came soon after kind of getting involved, uh, sort of going to see storytellers or, had, you know, were you sort of uh, part of that culture and community beforehand? It's a circle of friends that we were, that, that I was with around at the same time as we, uh, we met Suzanne. And they were, they always went to Festival at the Edge and one of them was one of the storytellers there. So we started going to Festival Edge sort of as we as we first met. So our first our first weekend together was Festival at the Edge. So it sort of it was a natural development that we had friends who were storytellers, and so in that circle it was what we wanted to do. Yeah, it was like yeah, let's try this because this is fun. So it was I mean, you were, you'd done like folk songs and stuff before, hadn't you? Yeah, and I was writing ballad versions of folk tales. Yeah. The, the song in uh, Beer and Bridie was one of those that you wrote probably around about the time because you'd been looking at those legends, hadn't you? Nearly 20 years ago, yeah, mm. I, would have been, I wrote that, that actual song. Yeah. 
So storytelling has has really been there as kind of like uh, an element of your relationship from the start then. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. Our children's names are influenced by Welsh legends, so, um, (laughs) and the cat. Um, They don't want to watch a storyteller anymore. No, they've heard them all, yeah. (laughs) Why do I have to see it? We've we've seen you rehearse it every night for the last week. Uh, I mean, you know, we're constantly... We'd like to be constantly working on stories and music, um, but Jake has to be an electrician during the day as well. So. It yeah, storytelling and music doesn't pay enough. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet, but yeah. It was great when we had the, the uh, Arts Council funding, which um, happily or unhappily coincided with lockdown, which meant the the project took on a whole different aspect. But we learned how to record stuff. We learned how to video stuff and things like that. So that gave us an extra string to our bow kind of thing but that that was our, our first first delve into funding which was quite exciting yet nerve-wracking at the same time um so that then we we we'd worked on saints and witches before that and so when we'd done uh where dragons lead which was the the project we um we thought well we could actually record something and put it out while there's no live performances happening we tried uh we looked at doing like a zoom performance but it didn't work for us so we thought um, that we'd record something and put it out there and see what happened. These um, creative projects that people have done during lockdown have been a, a bit of a lifeline, haven't they? It is, it's been good to to push boundaries, I think, a little bit because you get so used to wanting to do it live in front of an audience and booking a village hall or a, a town hall or whatever that you, you don't actually see what you can actually do from home. And I think um, lockdown helped us all go actually we could try this and so it's i think it's created a whole new i won't say art form because it's it's adapting art forms but it's being able to to listen to stuff online during lockdown was was really good and to be able to produce stuff to put online was really good for us as well using music and story together how do you go about doing that i mean does the music come first and then the stories or uh, is it the other way around is there a, a is there a method to it no no <laughs> exact method sometimes i'd have a bit of guitar things we'll have the ideas of the story and what we want if there's a song bit in it suzanne gives me the melody and then i have to put, then i weave that melody into a guitar piece so it depends on what story and what we're doing yeah the approach I think the the story kind of does it itself. It's very strange. Um, If we give them the idea for a story or we get the idea for a story, it kind of builds on its own and then the music starts to come out, the words start to come out and then they blend together really nicely. It's an organic approach. Yeah. I don't think science could explain it, to be honest. (laughs) with With the music, as a musician for a storyteller, you have to know the craft of the storyteller. Step into the story, step into the landscape of the story, bring the audience into the landscape. So, if the music isn't part of that landscape, it's going to detach the audience from the story. So, it's a really fine balance of actually getting atmosphere with music without breaking the breaking that audience contact with the landscape that they have been placed in. Does music change the way that you tell a story? I mean, do you have experiences where? You know, you you tell a story without music, and then with music, 
Um, does that kind of evolve it? Yeah, I think it, it opens it up because um, you're giving the, the music the space and it, it gives the, the listener a pause from the words, which I think, um, well, in, my, in my experience, it it helps to cement the landscape and the story because you're given like a, a listening pause, but there's, there's it's not silence. It kind of, and the, as Jake was saying, the music kind of weaves weaves it all together. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've told stories that I, I tell with with music and without, and when I'm telling them without, I hear the music, even when it's not there, because it, um, for me, it's become a part of it. So. I do like having a little bit of music in, in the storytelling. Um, I think it gives it a, an extra dimension. Yeah, I would agree. Jake, uh, sort of same question for you. I mean, do you, when you're playing the music, how how structured is it? Is it is it always played the same or do you improvise? Do you sometimes kind of like respond to the way Suzanne's using her voice and words? It's, or yeah. It's... From performance to performance? There's a structure which, if we were going to record it, that's how it would be done. And that can fit things. But doing it live, I have sort of circular phrases in the music with different tales. So depending on the pace that Suzanne's telling it or whether she improvises a bit more words and things and puts extra lines in, I can loop through a couple of phrases and things. And then the tale, yeah, and then different tales into different bits of music. So it's. But and also the tempo that you're playing at, and there's no real set meter to it sometimes because you have to do the pace of the tale, not the pace of the music. You right. have you have to feel the story to get the tempo. There was a couple of times when you were listening to the story and you forgot to come oh. in with a guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we we don't do the storytelling as a script. So there's sort of key phrases and key lines for the next bit of guitar to start. So there's one in, in the Elvin Night where the girl in it washes her face in the dew on the May morning. And then that's the key for the music to come in. And I've been so drawn into the story, I forgot my key. Always a danger, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, no, a couple of times. Oh, sorry, I'm supposed to be playing, not listening. <laughs> so when you were getting into this whole world of storytelling, which storytellers did you see? Was there any uh, particular inspirations for, I, I guess, Suzanne for your storytelling and, and Jake for you know, storytellers who, who might have used music in their own performances? Robin Williamson, I would say. Robin Williamson, because he does both. Because he does both, and he plays the harp so beautifully, and just listening to him tune the harp up is magical. Um, the first storyteller I really heard uh, would be Andy Harrop-Smith, because uh, he was a friend. <laughs> he still is. Um, and he just put so much energy into his telling. You know, I could hear him tell the same story many times and it it's still because the energy is there um i really like daniel morden's telling and i love the fact that he is um is now working with the devil's violin so that is bringing music and storytelling together and it's just amazing michael harvey he's working with pauline pauline down and they've been putting music but he's been putting music in story for years as well so maybe we're just you know Music and story has picked, picked up more in the last 10 years yeah. than it was. I'd say that those are my influential storytellers. I mean, if, if they're on, I'll go and see them. What, what's, what are your kind of 
goals as as storytellers is is there any particular kind of direction that you want to take your work yeah at the moment we we're working on what we want to do after having lockdown and and working on the arts council uh, red dragons lead um which was almost prescriptive because it had to fulfill certain criteria for the funding so we're kind of letting it off the reins and and going back to with the elvin night we it was very organic it came together bit by bit it took over a year to put together we're kind of doing that again um because we've been working on stories other things have come up and gone actually we could do that story and bring that song in and we could do that and so from from doing this this commission this year we we're going to be working on something that has evolved out of the commission and see where that takes us so at the moment we're open to the energies research and creativity time isn't it to yeah because every time we we start doing a bit of re- bit of research onto something that opens another door and we start looking at something else so we little tangents going off all the time and then and then we come back into the where we're supposed to be with a lot more knowledge so the imagery in your head as we come to the story is a lot stronger what kind of stories um, do you find that you're attracted to? You know, what kind of characters kind of uh, sort of leap um, off the page at you? They don't leap off the page. They come and visit. You get like a dream or I get a dream or Jake will get a bit of music in his head and he goes, this is a thing for this character. And um, yeah, it's, it's landscape and stories of landscape things that are held beneath rocks and in forests that kind of leap out and go, I've got a story, find out about this. And you go, okay. It's the little snippets of folklore that lead into something bigger. And we try and get as much of the folklore and superstitions and things and nature facts as research as much as we can to get those right as we can and weave those into the stories. Yeah, it's fun. So um, everywhere I used to go when I was young, my nan would always say, oh, there's a legend that says, and then she'd tell me the legend. And if we went to a place and she didn't say that, I would be disappointed because there wasn't a legend. So we'd find it out. Um, so I've always had a, a kind of lust for um, legends of the land and legends of place and historical things that happen as long as it's a good story, you know. Um so yeah, that that's kind of where we like like to work. I mean, the the Milberger story. There's there's quite a few that are centred around the area where we live, which is great because you can actually go and visit the places, which brings it so much more to life. It's incredible. You actually visit the well that was created by her hitting her head on a stone and a and a horse's hoof um, scooping at the ground, and you you, you wonder which. Which field was it that she made the the corn grow in? As you as you're looking around, and there's houses there now, but you can still imagine it. Um, and of course, uh, traveling along Wenlock Edge and stuff, you you can see um, in, in, in one of her other stories, you can see the prince who's chasing her moving through the woods like as stealthily as wolves with his men, and then suddenly bearing down on her. And it, it's just. It's just great to be able to see that landscape and imagine those stories happening because they did. Giants. Giants. Oh, giants, giants are everywhere. Giants yeah. of shape. 
the land they built, Shropshire Hills. Yeah. And you could stand on the hill, empty to stone cleat, where trees have never grown, and then you can see what stones are scattered everywhere because of the battle with the giant on Brankley. These things actually happened. You've got that whole um, relationship between story and landscape. Uh, is is there a local music tradition as well? You know, do you have uh, sort of uh, Shropshire folk songs and music? Does that work its way into Not the tales? Not really, because a lot of them weren't kind of written. Uh, Charlotte Byrne in the eighteen um, nineties, she she got some people to pen down in her folklore book some of the tunes, but they seem to be wide widely known tunes anyway. Um, there there may well be some. Uh, Shropshire folk tunes, but they're they're mostly up north. There there is one that was written on Clee Hill, which is um, known by many titles. One of them is Crowther's one, uh, which was written by Dennis Crowther, who's um, who lived on the hill uh, on Clee Hill, and and people use that as as Morris dancing. But he wrote that one, so um, that would be the only one that I know of locally, really. He wrote quite a few. But he did write quite a few, yeah. Yeah, I have thought about using the music scores in the Charlotte Burns book and weaving them. And we've done, went on Shropshire Radio, did the, what was it? The Soul. The Soul, the soul, soul song, song yes. for Halloween. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was what we, but that was for a different project, wasn't it? But, but we didn't use it in stories as such, but we've got experience so, of them. The music I use in <laughs> stories is really what I write myself often based on Suzanne's melodies and things. So actually using the Shropshire music, that's given me an idea now. Oh, dear. Um, I'm always happy to uh, inspire new ideas. Have you guys had any particular um, standout uh, gigs or storytelling yes. experiences so far? <laughs> um, when we did the Elvin Night at Bishop's Castle, there was this, this moment at the end where everybody paused as if to take breath and then they started clapping and the clapping went on for so long we were just astounded because they we just felt that the audience had really really got really? into the story and really enjoyed it and that was brilliant to know that they had because we've been telling it to the fridge one of, so one, to tell it to an audience and get that response was amazing one of my favorite responses after storytelling is when someone says where did I go for the last 10 minutes? And you've just told a 45-minute story. You know then that they've been in the landscape of the story and really, really part of it. So it's, it's bringing the audience into the story and knowing that they've got them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, the, that's the moments that are really fun. Yeah. You've been listening to Saints and Witches, a guest episode of Law and Legend with storytellers and musicians Suzanne and Jake Tumnus. You can find out more about Suzanne and Jake's storytelling, events, gigs and projects on their website, Cranesfield Bardic Arts, at www.cranesfieldbardicarts.co.uk and also through their Facebook page. Those links are there for you to follow in the episode show notes. The music and song accompanying the story today was performed by Suzanne and Jake Tumnus. The lore and legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall, and there is additional music from Sekilo Museum of Ancient Instruments. 
To find out more about episodes of Law and Legend, come and visit us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. And if you like what we're doing and you want us to carry on, then one of the best things that you can do to help us is to support the podcast by giving us a little bit of money regularly to help with the costs of maintaining the website, buying audio resources and sourcing fees for some of our contributors. For more details, visit our website and click on support us to find out how you can do that. Thanks once again for listening and stay safe out there, story folk. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.